Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Welcome to all of you here at Central Campus and also those of you who are meeting together at one of our other regional campuses in Airdrie and Bridgeland in South Calgary and also in the Crowfoot Theatres of Northwest Calgary. And then again, we do welcome those of you who are joining us online. One of the greatest reasons that people give for rejecting the Christian faith has to do with the problem of pain and suffering. If God is so good and so great, they say, then why is there so much suffering and pain going on in the world? When we hear of a young father murdered by thugs, leaving behind a shattered wife and three young children, when we hear of a woman who's been disfigured and brain damaged as a result of a car accident, not her own fault, when we see people dying of disease and malnutrition living on a garbage dump, or we hear of a six-year-old boy diagnosed with cancer, the question that immediately is asked is how could a good God allow these horrible calamities to happen? Years ago, Charles Templeton turned his back on God for that very reason. The God whose reality he had preached to tens of thousands of people alongside um, others like his good friend, Billy Graham. He came to the conclusion that God did not exist because of the issue of suffering. He saw a photo in Life magazine of an African mother holding her child who had died of starvation because of a lack of rain. And Templeton writes this, when I saw that photograph, I immediately knew it is not possible for this to happen and for there to be a loving God. There was no way. Who else but a fiend could destroy a baby and virtually kill its mother with agony when all that was needed was rain. Templeton is joined by millions of others on our planet who ask, if there is a God, then why is there so much evil? Augustine, centuries ago, responded to that question with a question of his own. He said, if there is no God, then why is there so much good? In other words, what he was suggesting in that question is, if evil exists, then one must assume that good exists in order to know the difference. Dr. Peter Kreeft of Yale University says the fact that Templeton is saying quite rightly that this horrible suffering isn't what ought to be means he has a notion of what ought to be, and that this notion corresponds to something real, and that there is therefore a standard called the supreme good. And Kreef goes on to say that's another name for God. Therefore, logically, evil proves the reality of God as much as Templeton believed it disproved God's reality. Now, research tells us that most people believe in God or in some kind of higher power. The problem is that many are unclear about 
what God is really like and particularly struggle putting their trust in a God who seems at times to be content to put his hands in his pockets and to tolerate sickness and evil and to be slow in extending grace. When we are hurting, we wonder, where is he? Does he even know what we're going through? Does he even care? Surely if he knew, he would do something. Something inside of us cries out for answers to make sense of who God is and, and, and what he is up to and why. Not that we are ever given a complete answer to the issue of suffering in this life. God's ways are not our ways. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there, there are some things this side of eternity that we see dimly. They are mysteries that we don't fully understand and won't fully understand until we get to heaven. And suffering is one of those mysteries. However, even though God may not give us all of the answers that we would like, He does give us some of the answers that we seek. The Bible gives a number of reasons for suffering. One of those reasons is because we live in a broken world. In Genesis chapter 1, we read that when God created the world, He said it was good. Death, disease, and abuse did not exist in God's original creation. He created us to live in what the ancient Israelites called shalom, which means to live in perfect harmony, peace, and wholeness. This was God's original plan for His creation. Where there is true shalom, there is no envy. Where there is true shalom, there is no hate. There is no violence. And so then where did evil and suffering come from? Well, God risked evil and suffering entering into the world in order to give us something that we all cherish. And that is our freedom, the freedom to choose. Bill Heibel says God could have created us all to be sophisticated androids with a special software package that ensured that we are always good and are always doing exactly what he wants us to do. But God decided against this option because a world without freedom is really a world without love. And folks, the Bible says that God is love. He created, it was love that actually prompted him to create us, to want to be in relationship with us. And he longs for us to share in that love and for us to freely return that love to him. You see, real love must involve a choice. For example, I suppose that you could program your computer to say, I love you every time you hit the you button. But would you believe it? Would, would it mean anything to you? Real love involves a choice. And so God gave us the freedom to love and to follow him, but in doing so, he also gave us the freedom to reject him or to ignore him. In Genesis 2.16, God set down clear parameters and guidelines for our first parents, Adam and Eve, 
to follow. And he warned them of the consequences of abusing that freedom. This is what he said. He said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, unfortunately, in Genesis 3, verse 14, we read that Adam and Eve chose to go their own way rather than follow God's way, resulting not only in the breakdown of their relationship with God and each other, but it also resulted in evil entering the cosmos, resulting in disease and death and natural disasters like earthquakes and hurricanes entering our world. Adam and Eve died spiritually that day in the sense that their relationship with God was fractured. They also began to die physically that day. And I say all of that to stress this very important point. The life that we live is not a right that we have or deserve from God's perspective, but it is a gift that we receive from God every moment of every day of our lives. Which means when someone dies, naturally we will be upset, we will be distraught, but we shouldn't be getting upset with God and asking him, why did you let this person die? Because in light of what I've just shared with you, the better question would be, God, why am I still alive? What purpose do you have for me yet to do? Because you have chosen to extend my life. You see, for reasons, as I've already explained, death, disease, and natural disasters do not describe the character of the God of the Bible. He never intended them in the first place. His heart breaks whenever they happen. But you see, that is the consequence of living in a broken world. Unless we want God to control everything and everyone by turning us into androids who do exactly what he wants us to do, we must endure the consequences of living in a broken world, a world that is filled with selfish people who will do things that will hurt other people, a world that's filled with evil and hardship and suffering and hurt as a result. A further reason the Bible gives for suffering is the sinful choices of other people. Romans 3.23 says the wages of sin is... Uh, he's, sorry, the, uh, Romans 3.23 says, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says that the cost or the wages of sin is death. Because we are naturally selfish, we have the capacity to make bad choices in life that often cause hurt and suffering in the lives of others. We see this from the earliest days of recorded history right up to our present day. In Genesis chapter 4, we read how Cain made a choice to kill his brother Abel. 
In Genesis 27, Jacob swindled Esau of his father's blessing and birthright, essentially because of greed. In Genesis 37, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because of jealousy. Over in the New Testament era, King Herod slaughtered all the babies in and around Bethlehem in an attempt to kill the baby Jesus because of his neurotic obsession with power and his paranoia of losing it. And today, all we need to do is turn on the radio, open the newspaper, or turn on the television to see stories like these played out over and over again. You see, a lot of hurt that we suffer in life is the result of either the direct or the indirect acts of selfishness, prejudice, jealousy, anger, hate, lust, and greed of other people. Earlier, I referenced Charles Templeton, who turned his back on God because, in his words, he believed if there was a God, he would not stand by and allow a child to starve to death. And yet, the reality is God has provided more than enough food on this planet to feed everyone three good meals a day. The issue is not that God is standing by, but too many people on the planet are standing by watching children starve to death because of greed and an unwillingness to share the resources and the food that God has provide, provided abundantly. I mean, you see, this is just one example of how much suffering is going on today that's caused by the selfish choices of other people. A third reason the Bible gives for suffering is our own sinful choices. Many of the hardships that wreak havoc in our lives are in fact self-induced. In fact, someone has estimated that 95% of the suffering in the world is the result of our own sin or the sin of other people. If I mistreat those that I love, if I have a poor work ethic, if I take drugs, I will reap the consequences of those actions. And I really have no one to blame but myself for that. And yet so often we are still prone to blame God. An investor gets greedy and decides to put it all on the line in the stock market on some high-risk investment. But the economy takes a nasty turn. And instead of making it big, he loses big. And in his despair, he shakes his fist at God and he says, how could you let this happen? I prayed before I made that investment. A married couple chooses to defy all of God's principles pertaining to the building of a healthy marriage. They keep God and the church at a safe, comfortable distance. They invest all of their time pursuing money, possessions, and the good life, leaving little or no room to grow spiritually, to grow closer to God and, and, and what God desires for their life. Little or no time to develop accountability relationships with others. The marriage begins to unravel, and then it disintegrates. 
Heart-wrenching divorce follows, and in the middle of it all, one or both shake their fist at God, and they say, how could you let this happen? A person gets drunk, staggers into his car, and races home, and in the process, hits a woman and kills her. And at the funeral, people ask, oh God, how could you let this happen? And once again, God takes the rap for the neglect, the selfishness, the sin, and the poor choices of man. We demand our freedom to do as we wish. But when someone uses that freedom for selfish purposes, when someone uses that freedom for evil purposes, we want God to change the rules. We want him to step into time and into space and to remove free will and stop that person from doing so. People say to me, why doesn't God just put an end to all the evil and suffering that's going on in the world? And yet think about what we are asking. If most of the hardships and suffering in the world is due to our sinful choices and the sinful choices of other people, to remove suffering, God would need to essentially remove all of us. Or at the very least, take away our freedom to make decisions. You see, we can't have it both ways. We can't demand the freedom to choose and do what we want to do and at the same time blame God for the consequences of the bad decisions that we make. Friends, God is not the author of evil and suffering. This world is not the way that he intended it to be. Now, folks, I'm stating this so strongly because you'll never find true peace in the midst of suffering unless you understand that God isn't your enemy but your friend. He longs to be your very best friend. He is not some vindictive God who gets jollies out of seeing you squirm with pain. He wants to be your best friend. I've had two bouts with cancer, and I can tell you from personal experience that I can't imagine going through the valley without him. In fact, this past week, I and members of our family went through a, a very traumatic experience which we'll tell you about in a few moments. But through that all, I learned once again that as much as I appreciate great answers, great godly answers during times of uncertainty, what I cherish more than anything is the great hope that I have found in God. He is my rock. He is my anchor. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of whatever trial or hardship I'm going through, I say that again and again. You take him out of the picture and nothing makes sense. And all hope is lost. I agree with the psalmist who said, my soul finds rest in God, in God alone. And so I want to devote the remainder of our time talking about how to find peace in the midst 
of hardships and suffering. And to guide us, I'd like to direct us to Psalm 46. Would you stand with me, please? And let's read a portion of this psalm together. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You may be seated. Now, the psalmist gives us several keys to finding peace in the midst of suffering. And the first one is trust in God's character. Here in Psalm 46, God says, be still and know something. Know that I am God. The psalmist says when trouble comes and you're filled with fear, when it feels like the mountains are falling into the heart of the sea, in other words, when it feels like your world is being turned upside down, don't try to take matters into your own hands. No, stop, be still, turn your face toward God and away from that issue and that problem. Focus on who God is and get his perspective. To be still means to relax. It means to let go, to cease trying to fix things yourself. God says, be still and know that I am God. In other words, the more you know God, the greater will be your peace during difficult times. And the less you will feel the need to take matters into your own hands and to strive to do it all on your own. You know, it's very difficult to trust someone that you don't know. And my question is, how well do you know God? Some of you may remember when the Calgary Flames won the Stanley Cup. It's hard to believe. It's 25 years ago. 25 years ago. The city was electric with excitement going into the seventh and final game against Montreal. The night of the game, I was speaking here at the church. <laughs> to rows of empty pews, but... And so I did what every good pastor does, is I videotaped the game, hoping no one would tell me the outcome of the game, and I'd be able to go home and have the joy of watching the game with white-knuckled anxiety, as I had done in all the previous games in the series. Well, as it turned out, on the way out of the church building, some very very inconsiderate Flames fan, came running up to me and announced with great enthusiasm that the Flames had won the cup 
And I was happy, but I was also sad at the same time because I wanted to go through the agony of watching that game. Well, I went home and I watched the game anyways, but I noticed something right away. That unlike all the other times I watched the Flames, this time I was totally relaxed. I mean, even when Montreal scored, you know, I wasn't worried one bit. Go ahead and score. No big deal. Good shot. Way to go. You see, it was something that I knew that made the difference. I could relax because I knew the outcome. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying, well, if God, you know, told me the outcome of the crisis that I'm in, you know, I'd relax too. I mean, if, 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 if God told me that the MRI was going to turn out okay, man, I would just be real calm. No problem. Dr. Joseph Stowell, he says, this psalmist here is not saying that we can cease striving because we know how it's all going to work out. No, he says, we can cease striving because we know the God who's going to work it all out. And knowing God, he says, is better than knowing the outcome. That is powerful. It's about our relationship with God. That's why he created us. The Bible teaches that God is totally sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere present. He's all-knowing. Not only is God the creator of the universe, but Colossians 1.17 says that he holds it all together. In Acts chapter 17, verse 28, it says that he sustains you and me, that it is in him that we live and move and have our being. And what that means is, is there is nothing that happens to us, good or bad, that God is not aware of. In other words, he does not look the other way when, when we enter into a time of hardship. He isn't out golfing totally oblivious to our situation. We may feel that he's deserted us, but the scriptures remind us that he has not forgotten us. In fact, he sustains us every moment of every day of our lives. Every heartbeat is a gift from him. He's still there in the same way that the sun is still shining up there even when the clouds completely block the sun out. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus promised that he would always be with us. In Proverbs 18, 24, it says that our God is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. If you've ever faced death, then you'll know what I mean when I say that the greatest struggle that I had during the season I was going through the valley was one of feeling all alone. You see, you can have loving friends. You can have an entire church that loves you, surrounding you and praying for you, 
but you feel all alone when you're in the valley of the shadow of death with one exception and that is that God meets you there God's presence and his reality becomes more real in the valley than anywhere else. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Our God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere present. Nothing escapes his awareness. Do you know that about our God? Do you trust him in that? Our God is also good. In John chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate says to him, Don't you realize that I have the power to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And what Jesus is saying here is if my Father in heaven wouldn't allow you to order my crucifixion, you couldn't. We see the same principle in the life of Job. Satan wanted to do him in, and God gave him permission, but up to a certain point, he says, you can't cross this line. Nothing escapes his awareness. And what all of that means is that even though God is not the author of evil and suffering, he will at times allow it to come our way to accomplish good from it either for us or for others. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now this verse does not say that everything that happens to us is good. No, it acknowledges that, uh, that troubles and bad things will come our way. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But this verse also assures us that God can use those troubles to accomplish good in our lives and the lives of others if we will remain open to God and not grow bitter and angry at God. Neither does this verse promise that God will bring good out of bad for everyone. No, it says this promise applies only to those who love him. But it is with that in mind that whatever calamity or adversity we are in, we can know with confidence that God has a loving and good purpose for it. The Bible tells us that God can use hardships and pain to get our attention, to draw us to himself. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us, in our pain. In Romans 5, 3, we're told that God can use hardships to deepen our character. Paul says we are to rejoice in our suffering, not in a masochistic way, but because we know that suffering produces some things. It produces 
perseverance and character and hope. In other words, suffering not only deepens our character, but it brings us back to a greater dependence on God, which is what, where God wants us to be living all the time. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says that God can use hardships to get our eyes off the temporary concerns of this life, the stuff that really isn't going to matter in the end, and instead to focus more clearly on the eternal things of life, to examine our values and our priorities. Tim Keller tells the story of a man in his church who lost most of his eyesight after he was shot in the face during a drug deal that had gone bad. He told Keller before losing his eyesight he had been an extremely selfish and cruel person, one who always blamed his constant legal and relational problems on other people. The loss of his sight devastated him, but it also profoundly humbled him. He said, as my physical eyes were closed, my spiritual eyes were opened. I finally saw how I had been treating people. I changed, and now for the first time in my life, I have friends, real friends. It was a terrible price to pay, he says, and yet I must say it was worth it. I finally have what makes life worthwhile. In Genesis, we read the story of Joseph, Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. It's hard for us to understand this because we read it so quickly in the scriptures, but he spent most of his formative years, most of his 20s in prison for something that he was totally innocent of. And yet through all of that, his character was being refined, it was being strengthened, which prepared him for the work that God was preparing him for to be the prime minister of Egypt one day and also to save literally thousands of people from starvation. Now you go over to Genesis 50, and here you find Joseph... In front of his brothers again, he's in a position now as prime minister. He's in a position of power. He is in a position to punish his brothers for what they did. And yet he chooses to forgive them because he has God's perspective now. And he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended to use it for good. You know, so often we get upset with God for not giving us what we want. But have you ever considered that God may be saying no and that there's a reason for that no? Have you ever considered that he may be saying, wait, be patient, because he is making you, he is forming you more like Jesus because he's deepening your character? Have you ever thought that he may be preparing you for a special assignment or a work that he has for you. All that to say, we may not be able to make any sense for the hardship that we're going through and why God isn't responding to it and dealing with it. 
taking it away. But we can know that he works all things, be they good or bad, together for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. We need to trust him in that. You know, when I think of God's love and goodness for us, I'm reminded of an incident in the life of our second son, Jonathan. He was a toddler, two to three years old at the time. He'd taken a rather bad fall, um, hitting his head on the wall. And when an hour later or so he began to throw up, we suspected a concussion, and so we took him to Children's Hospital. The doctors decided that an x-ray was needed, and unfortunately that involved strapping him to the x-ray table. After I peeled his hands from my neck and put him on the x-ray table, he was not a happy camper, and as they strapped him down, he was screaming to high heaven, his arms reaching out to me. The medical staff, they noticed that my presence wasn't doing a whole lot of good, and so they asked if I might leave the room. And just before I turned to go, I'll never forget the look on his face that essentially was saying to me, Daddy, why are you letting them do this to me? I thought you loved me. Now, I would have gladly have taken his place on that table, but it was impossible for me to explain to him that we were trying to help him, that it was love that required me to allow them to strap him to that table. You know, that incident really has helped me to understand my Heavenly Father's love for me, even when I think the circumstances of my life are making no sense at all and that He has deserted me. That incident has convinced me that Jesus must feel my pain, your pain. He must suffer with us even as I did for my little boy in that moment. Life is not always good. But friends, on the authority of God's word, I'm here to tell you that God is good. Do you know him? Do you trust him? A further key to finding peace in the midst of hardship is not only to know the character of God, but to pray persistently. Look at verse 1. It says, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Regardless of what is happening in our lives, we need to believe that God is our ever-present help in trouble when we come to him and ask him in prayer. The Bible is clear that there are numerous barriers to prayer. And I want you to think and reflect on these for a moment. Those barriers to prayer include habitual sin in our life. They include asking with wrong motives. They include an unforgiving spirit stinginess in our giving, mistreating our spouse. They include idols in our heart where we put things or other people ahead of God. 
Now, if these are realities in our lives, then we need to repent of them. We need to turn around and go in the opposite direction. If we're not generous, we need to start being generous. If we're mistreating our spouse, we need to start loving our spouse the way that God calls us to love her or him. We need to turn our lives around and start living the way that God wants us to so that there's nothing that hinders our prayers. But having done so, we need to keep praying because prayer makes a difference. You know, I'm convinced that our greatest failure in prayer is that we don't persevere in prayer. We pray for a time. We see no results. The situation maybe even gets worse. And we conclude that God isn't hearing us, that he doesn't care about us, he doesn't care about our situation. Or maybe we think that there's something wrong with the way that we pray. Big mistake. Just because we don't see any immediate results doesn't mean that God isn't at work. Remember, he sees things that we don't see. He knows things that we don't know. He is working in ways behind the scenes that we know nothing about. But we need to believe he is at work. Now, sometimes God's answer is just a plain no. And we just need to accept that. But sometimes God is delaying his answers for reasons that we don't understand. I've already talked about what a few of those might be. We need to trust him. And even when we feel unworthy to pray, when we feel inadequate to pray, when we think we don't have enough faith, as some people say we might not have, when we think we aren't praying right, I challenge all of us to just pray anyways. Because what the enemy wants from you and me is that we just won't pray. That we will let what other people are saying, oh, you don't have enough faith, or you're not praying right. All of those things get in the way just so we don't pray. just pray anyways because our prayers make a difference a final key to finding peace in the midst of suffering and hardship is to refuse to give up on God the psalmist concludes by saying the Lord Almighty is with us the God of Jacob is our fortress now he says that twice in this short chapter and that's significant because by repeating it, he's trying to get our attention. He's saying, this is important. And he's saying, even when nothing makes sense, remember that the God of Jacob is our fortress. The Almighty is with us. Remember that. Choose to trust God anyways, that He is with you. In his book, when God doesn't make sense. Dr. James Dobson tells the story of a bright young Christian man who was studying to be a medical doctor at one of the finest medical schools in the United States. He loved the Lord with a passion and he wanted to serve him the rest of his life as a medical missionary. He wasn't interested in the big bucks that, come, that often come with that profession. He wasn't interested in the status. He had a deep desire to help the less privileged overseas. 
And yet six months into his training, he grew ill. He was diagnosed with leukemia. He died a year later. You know, you can think about that the rest of your life and you won't figure it out. I mean, this young man was sold out for God and for the cause of Jesus Christ. Why this? No answer. Job tried to figure out why all of this had happened to him. He cried out to God more than once. No answer. Now I share that with you because there will be times when all that you've heard me say in this message all that you've read in the Bible, all that you've read in some really good books on this subject of suffering will seem empty and hollow. And the only thing which will keep you going is a stubborn faith that worships God and simply refuses to give up on God. Nothing else will work. Nothing else will bring relief. Pastor Jim Conway was devastated when his 15-year-old daughter lost her leg to cancer. After the surgery, he headed to the basement of the hospital and began beating on the walls, screaming out his frustration and his anger at God. He just couldn't make any sense of why God would allow this. He concluded the article with these words. Probably the most important thing I learned in this entire process is this. I became deeply aware that there are only two choices I could make. One was to continue in my anger toward God and follow the path of despair that I was on. The other choice was to let God be God and somehow say, I don't know how all of this fits together. I don't understand the reasons for it. In fact, I don't e I'm not even going to ask for an explanation. I've chosen to accept the fact that you are God and I'm the servant instead of the other way around. And it is there that I left it. He writes, like Job, I am now able to say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. It's either despair or it's acceptance of his sovereignty. Those are the alternatives. Let me say it again. It's either despair or it's God. There is nothing in between. This past week, our family learned this truth in a new and fresh way. Wednesday evening, we received a call from our daughter-in-law, Arian, informing us that she was taking our son Matt to the walk-in clinic. Matt had been having severe headaches and dizziness for several weeks, something he'd never had before. And the symptoms were particularly acute on Wednesday evening. When she called an hour later, informing me that they were on their way to Foothills Hospital to get an emergency CT scan, I knew that the doctors were taking this very seriously. I knew that this wasn't just another routine thing. And I made my way to Foothills Hospital. 
The next 15 hours would be a life-changing experience for all of our family. Here I was preparing a message on suffering. (laughs) And our Lord, it appears, wanted to give me a refresher course. And so as I was thinking about how I was going to close this message, it dawned to me about an hour before the service last night (laughs) that instead of just talking about this, I should call Matt and ask if he'd be willing to tell us a little bit about his experience during those 15 hours, and he agreed. And so would you please welcome our son Matt as he shares. That would have been bad. <laughs> that son. It is, great. it is great to be with you this morning. I always thought I understood what it meant to be a fully surrendered, devoted follower of Christ. I know God desires to have our full attention, our whole heart, with nothing holding us back. I also know that I was busy, very busy, that the busyness of work, but also the busyness of being a young father with four children at home was getting in the way of me developing that deeper relationship that God desired to have with me. But when my body began to fail, I knew that I may have pushed myself too hard. When I went to the doctor to get checked, I assumed that it would be like a regular checkup. Uh, You know, they'd tell me to slow down and get some sleep. But when the doctor said I needed to get to an emergency, uh, the emergency department right away for a CT scan, I had a feeling that this was different. During the CT scan, I started to think about how this scan would dramatically change my life. After the CT scan, the doctor informed us that the scan showed something. It showed an abnormality in my brain, and they didn't know what it was, and that the doctor had ordered an emergency MRI four hours later, first thing in the morning. Given the severe symptoms that I was experiencing, the abnormal CT scan, the obviously concerns of all the doctors around me, and then the priority that they gave to the tests, I began to think the worst, that I had a brain tumor. Immediately, I started to think about things as they raced through my mind. I'm not going to see my kids grow up. I'm not going to be there for my family. Erin's going to be a single mom. And I'm not going to be able to walk my daughters down the aisle now or see my sons get married. And this possibility brought so much clarity to my life. What mattered and didn't matter. It was so clear to me. All the projects that I had going on at work, money and possessions, all the things that I was always concerned about, they all evaporated into insignificance. And suddenly, the only thing that mattered to me was my relationship with God and my relationship with my family. Early that next morning, as I was being rolled into the MRI machine, I closed my eyes and I prayed this. Lord, I know that you work all things together for good. I know that you are faithful and that you have my best interests at heart. 
and that in all things, you will not put me through anything that I cannot handle. And if, if it is your will today for me to go through this season of suffering where my life is completely turned upside down, then I say yes, God, I say yes, because I'm in. I surrender myself to you, God, I surrender. But you know the desires of my heart, my hopes and my dreams. And if this is your will, God, please, let this cup pass from me. Spare me from this reality. I trust you, God. I trust you with all these things. And I ask that today you'd show yourself powerful. It was an amazing moment for me as I laid in that machine. And it was just me and God, and that was it. And after the test was done, I had to wait for the results in the hospital. And as we waited, I realized that this entire process had actually impacted my life deeply and that we would never, ever be the same. And I didn't even know the results yet. A significant shift had occurred in my life, in my thinking, and I knew that my life would never be the same, regardless of the outcome. My dependence had been refocused on God as he stripped all control from my life, leaving me totally dependent on him. God had gotten my attention that day in a big way. And when the doctor came to tell us the results of the MRI, I was terrified because I knew, I spend a lot of time in hospitals, and I knew when I saw the social worker that I remembered, I recognized outside our room, I knew that this was not going to be good. But an amazing peace came over me that reminded me that my life was in his hands and that he is trustworthy. And I realized that faith is not asking God for something and then expecting to get it. Faith is trusting God in my circumstance no matter how it looked or how difficult it was. And when the doctor came in and talked to us, she said that the tests had come back completely normal. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. And whatever was in my CT scan, whatever was in my brain four hours earlier was now gone. I was absolutely floored. For even though they had some semi-medical explanation for why this happened, I knew that God's hand had been in it, that he had removed it, and that it had given me the opportunity... He had given me that opportunity, that second chance to live the life that I knew that he wanted me to live. In some ways, those 15 hours were the worst hours of my life. But in other ways, they were the best 15 hours of my life because I came to know God in a whole new way. I experienced firsthand what really matters in life, what really matters to God and the important work that he has called me to do with my family and those around me. My perspective has totally changed on everything. Suddenly tucking in my kids for bed is not such a big deal anymore. Suddenly washing the floors in my house and changing diapers and everything that goes along with young children doesn't 
it's not that much work anymore because I want to do it. Suddenly, when a friend comes to my office wanting to talk and I've got a stack of work that's higher than my, the roof, it doesn't matter anymore because we have people around us that need us. We have people that are in our lives that God is bringing to us so that we can speak into their lives as well. Moms and dads, how much of your life are you spending doing things with your kids instead of enjoying them? Those of us that have issues at work or in relationships, how much are we getting worked up over the little things? They may seem big now, but the little things. Now I want to do these things. Now I want to move forward. I wouldn't change the last 15 hours of my life. They are the best thing that's ever happened to me. And though I would never want to go through it again, for all that God has shown me, I would go through it again. I now know what it means to be fully surrendered to God. And I give him all the glory and all the praise for not only touching my body, but for touching my life at its core. My friends, he is faithful. He can be trusted regardless of the circumstances you're facing today. And he will work all things, all things, together for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. Please do not wait for a storm to come in your life to surrender. And I'm not saying a little surrender. I mean fully surrender your life to him. Do not wait for a storm to come. Whatever you are holding on to, whatever it is, give it to him now. Give it to him. Thank you, my friends, my family, for your prayers. We have so much to be thankful for. Amen. Thanks, man. talking to an 85-year-old man just after the first service, and he said to me, um, I wish every young man like your son could have my perspective of life from my vantage point. This past week, um, we, um, we just went through a real time together as a family. And as a father, I can tell you, I hated going through those 15 hours with my son. And yet, in light of eternity, in light of what's really going to matter when life is all said and done, and in light of what Matt experienced and learned during those 15 hours, I am grateful to God for those 15 hours. Now, many of you know my story, but as we were walking with Matt and Harry and through this time of uncertainty, Gwen, my wife, and I were reliving the time about 27 years ago when, as a young couple, we were in Foothills Hospital waiting to hear from our doctor about a series of tests that had been, um, been made on me. And it dawned on me that I was the same age as Matt. 
Matt has four children under the age of six. And at that time, our four boys were under the age of six. And I can still remember the, the emotional roller coaster that we went through. And how, as in the case of Matt and Harry, God used that time in our life as a young couple to take our faith and our walk in God to another whole level, new level. Like Matt and Harry, God has already done a deep work in our lives before we heard the doctor give us the final results of those medical tests. In our case, though, when the doctor came in, he informed us that I had cancer. Now, I'd be lying if I said that that news didn't knock the wind right out of me. But I can say what gave us peace back then is the same thing that gave us peace during this 15-hour ordeal that Matt and Harriet went through. And that is just an absolute deep conviction that God loves us more than we could love our own children. That he has our best interests at heart in all things. That he makes no mistakes. That even when our life has been turned upside down and nothing is making any sense, that he can be trusted. That he is our rock. He is our fortress. And he will never leave us or forsake us. And that in all things, he is working out things for our good and for his ultimate glory. Friend, I may not be able to tell you why you're facing certain storms in your life, but as one who has walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I can tell you whatever the problem, whatever the crisis, you need not face it alone. We may not know how it's all going to turn out, but we know the God who will work it out. And friends, one day we're all going to re recognize the truth that knowing God is better than knowing the outcome. And you're going to discover that when all that you have left is God, God is enough. Would you please stand with me? We're just going to close our service today by responding to God with an old hymn of the faith. And as was indicated earlier, we want to invite those of you who are going through a season of suffering, those of you who have suffered the loss of your health, the loss of a special relationship, the loss of a job, the loss of a business, the loss of a loved one, whatever burden it is that you are carrying, we want to invite you to come forward and we just want to uphold you in prayer. We want to encourage you. Friends, come on out and, and let us pray and encourage you. Give God your burden. Give him whatever it is that is um, heavy on your shoulders right now. Give it to him and receive prayer. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.